All right, Trinity Church, meeting on the lawn, meeting online. We are so glad that you're here with us today. If you are sitting on this front section of grass, would you turn your heads around and would you see our folks joining us in the cheap seats? Would you wave hello to them? There it is. All right, look at that. One big family. Even if we're divided by a little bit of asphalt in between, uh, we are here this morning. We're glad you guys are joining us online. My name is Todd Arnett, lead pastor here at Trinity Church. We are continuing in a series called Armed. Before we do, can we thank the worship team? What a great job this morning. And you might have noticed new faces, new voices. That was a ton of fun. We have some new folks joining our worship teams in general, and we had a few of them up here today, and that was just really exciting to me. But we are really glad that you're here today. In this series, we are walking through the different armament that God has given us to engage spiritual battle together. If you have a Bible, you want to open it to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6 is where we'll begin today. If you uh, have, if you're here with us and you don't have notes already, which I wouldn't expect you to, if you go to our app, you'll be able to see those under resources, sermon notes. If you want to go to our website equally, you'll be able to see that on the front page next to our sermon uh, connection. There'll be a thing for sermon notes as well. Help you follow along a little with us today as we walk it out. Hey, we need to thank what a great job yesterday our kids team under Kim Simons. Can we thank them for a great hot happening Halloween is still happening event? They just did an amazing job. We saw over 700 people join us yesterday, carousing, walking through this eastern parking lot, and just a great time. I had so many families tell me it's so great to have at least a semblance of something that seems normal, and we're grateful that, that the team did a great job providing that for families in that space. Kim wanted me to make sure to thank you because of the candy donations, because of so many of you who might not normally be involved with our children's ministries, but you set up a trunk or treat kind of car, you ran a game. She absolutely wanted me to communicate how grateful she was for your involvement, donating candy, whatever it took, because families truly were blessed. And our whole point of why we do things like that is to create an opportunity when people come on this campus and have an amazing experience than to say, I wonder what happens on Sunday. And that's our hope. So we're excited. Thank you very much for your engagement. Well, in this series, what we've been asking in a very pivotal time in all of our lives for so many reasons, we're asking ourselves, who is the enemy? Is the enemy uh, the government? Is the enemy the other political party? Is the enemy someone of a different ethnicity? Is the enemy anyone at Trinity Church who disagrees with me on any of those things? And what we keep coming back to is that that is not the case. That number one, the, the Bible tells us that all human beings are image bearers of God and therefore have not only worth and value and are deeply loved, but are always redeemable until there's breath taken out of their lungs. And so that opportunity is always there, no matter how far away they may be from God today. And we also know that for us, the people of God, the Bible uses language like brother and sister. Growing up, you might have felt like your younger sister was your enemy, okay? But she wasn't, and you know better now. And we know as a body collectively that God calls us powerfully, Ephesians 4, to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And we are called to live in that kind of connection, that unity as family members. So we are not each other's enemies. So then who is None other than God's enemy, Satan himself. 
who wants nothing more than to steal, kill, and destroy what God loves most, and that's you. So we are walking into a, this, walking through this series, identifying God. He has given us not only as His children but as His army armament to engage, to defend, to stand against the enemy's attacks. And so you join us today as we continue on with another piece of armor. If you look here at my table, you might be guessing what we might be looking at, and uh, we'll talk about it in just a second. So here's what we're going to do. Paul today, he likens this idea, this next piece of armor is that of salvation. We'll unpack that word a little bit. He likens that to that of a helmet, that which protects your most valuable asset, your mind. So let's dive in. Here's our now what statement on the screen in your notes. Welcome gladly and respond lovingly for the salvation that is offered through Jesus alone. Number one in your notes, there is no source of salvation apart from Jesus. There is no source of salvation apart from him. You're in Ephesians chapter six, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Verse 17, take the helmet of salvation. So as we continue into these different aspects, we began this series looking at a couple foundational concepts in this passage. What does it mean to stand? What is that posture all about related to this idea of spiritual battle? And then we began looking at these elements of truth. What has God given us to be able to be engaged in spiritual battle together? Remember, every verb that we're seeing in Ephesians 6 beyond 13 is all in the y'all tense. These are second person plurals. You were never expected to engage spiritual battle by yourself, but with these other uh, members of the, God's army together. It's always been meant to be that way. We've talked about how often many of us have never heard this series taught that way. Every image we look at is usually one soldier, and that's why even our armed graphic in, on purpose has a, a demonstration of a group of soldiers working together. So we looked at these elements of truth. We looked at righteousness. We looked at the gospel of peace. Last week, we looked at faith, and today, we look at this idea, idea of salvation. And one of the things we talked about last week, a little bit tangential, is that some of us have approached this idea of spiritual battle and, and arming ourselves, which we're called to do, but in a very mystical way, as though it's kind of almost, and I, I, I dare to say the word, almost an incantation. I know we would never say that, but almost like I've got to uniquely kind of pray for these things and do these things. When I would put out to you there is a call to be mindful, to be thoughtful of these elements of armor. But at the end of the day, look in your notes. We're best prepared to battle our enemy when we obey the directions of our commander. Meaning, rather than get so wrapped up in all of the techniques and strategies and tactics of the evil one, rather than think that I can somehow pray a unique prayer and all this battle armor simply falls upon me, if I will keep in front of me what the commander says daily, 
I'm going to do well, not only in obeying and pleasing him, but I'm going to do, be doing well in battling my enemy, our enemy. So today we look at this first idea. We're going to kind of walk this out, looking at this idea of a, a soldier's helmet. He begins with an interesting directive. The Greek word means that of welcoming or receiving with ready reception that which is offered. So take. Now that verb is again a y'all. It's a second person plural. So you all take up. But it's this idea and it's an imperative verb. So it is a command. But to take up gladly to take up in a welcoming way, to take up with gratitude this helmet of salvation. This idea of helmet is a pretty obvious word. I brought some, uh, some examples today. Now, this is not a first century helmet. This would have been maybe a replica of that which was used in the Crusades. And you kind of think of this, am I echoing pretty cool? I feel like I am. I got to tell you, this feels like it's probably about three to five pounds on my head. So you think about not only the, what it would protect from, but how heavy it would be to wear along with all the other pieces of armor. But this gives us maybe at least a little idea of some sort of this kind of metal helmet that would have been about. I appreciate my good friend, Bill Bourne, provided me. This is no replica, by the way. It's got a name in side World War II era helmet. This is really an amazing thing. This belongs in a museum. So I'm going to give it back to Bill as soon as we're done today so it can go in one. But this is an amazing thing. And I would just put it on the other day to make sure everything fits okay. And I just sat there and I thought about a little bit, where has this been? You hear the metal, it's again, it's a pretty weighty thing. And you realize it was there for the protection of a soldier. This might be a little bit more in our modern era. But then I was thinking about why do we use helmets anyway, like today? Because they have lots of needs and purposes. Let me show you. So this is, uh, Bill, let me borrow one of his motorcycle helmets as well. And this is a much more known entity. You're not going out to battle, but you're definitely being wise when you're going to get out on a motorcycle. And I was thinking about this. Sometimes we think about these biblical concepts, and it's true. If we don't go out to war, we don't think about, well, I, wouldn't, I don't know what a military helmet would be like or why I would put one on. But we use helmets all the time. And think of it this way. In the way that a soldier wouldn't go out to battle without a helmet. That's like got to be the dumbest thing ever because there's nothing to protect your gourd, nothing to protect the brain. If this doesn't work, nothing else is going to. So in the same way you wouldn't do that, even though some of us might disobey motorcycle laws, you should not get on a bike without one of these. I was watching some college football yesterday, and in one of the plays, a player's helmet popped off live in the game while the play was still going on. I got to tell you, every time that happens, I take a breath, because I'm thinking if that guy is not smart and he gets popped from behind or something happens, man, he's going to be toast. That's a horrible idea to be playing football without a helmet. Getting into the batter's box and a, a major league pitcher throwing a 100-mile-an-hour fastball at you, you need one of these like Corey Seager did when the Dodgers won the World Series. You knew I'd have to fit that in somehow, right? You knew it. I asked my good friend Chris Petnacht if he could lend me his Dodgers batting helmet. He is a Giants fan. He didn't appreciate that very much. Anyway, let me, uh, let me flip back, Joe. 
What I want you to see is, is that our use of helmets and in our daily lives, we actually use helmets for a lot of the same reason. Though we might not be going into battle, we are protecting this thing that God has given us. This is control center. Everything that we do is going to flow out of this thing working right. Now think of the correlation. When this thing is thinking right, Everything we flow, everything we do is flowing from that reality. So God, as, as Paul is considering this armament of soldiers, it's interesting what he likens this idea of salvation to. He could have picked all these other types of concepts, but it's that of a helmet, that which protects the mind is what he made the correlation to. I want you to see that before we're done today, the power of that concept, that it is our mind that salvation protects. I want to be able to show you what I mean by that before we're done. Let's talk, though, a little bit more about this concept of salvation. Salvation is a word that I feel like I've told you before in my little definition. I call them like church words or Christianese. We use them a lot, but I'm not terribly sure we always know what they mean. So let me, let me use this word this way today. Let me define it for you. Look in your notes or on the screen. I love this definition that Stephen Cole gave. He said, salvation means that God has rescued you from the penalty of sin. Notice the past tense verb. God has rescued you from the penalty of sin. He is rescuing you from the power of sin and he will rescue you from the presence of sin. Isn't that great? That's a great definition. So salvation has much to do with the concept of being rescued, being saved from that which is evil, from that which is wicked, from that which is harmful to you. That's the concept. So when we think about that, because right, we use that word, you know, we use the phrase, are you saved? We say that often. It's a derivative of the word salvation. They're the same word, English word, but that's what we're asking have you experienced salvation from the penalty of sin? Are you being rescued from the power of sin? And are you expecting one day, rightly so, to be rescued fully from the presence of sin? That's, that's a great working definition for this concept of salvation today. And I want you to see there's some passages that I love that demonstrate this. On the screen, Colossians 1, this is the end of Paul's prayer in chapter 1 to the church in Colossae. He says, for he, talking about God, for he has rescued us. That's a great synonym today for salvation means to be rescued. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves and whom we have redemption, watch, the forgiveness of sins. That's what rescue looks like. You've been forgiven for your sins. And I love in the song that we just sang, we actually echoed these words loudly. Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else. This is the apostles preaching and they're talking about the name of Jesus. Just like we just sang, there is no other name. For there is, and there's an the extra verse, there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now I've shown you weekly that there are some interesting, as Paul is writing these words to the Ephesian church, we're realizing he's actually probably borrowing some concepts from the former covenant. 
Look at this. In uh, Isaiah 59, 17, talking about Yahweh, he will put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. So something about what Paul knew about the prophet Isaiah, he is thinking of clearly as he's writing to the Ephesian church. And he uses actually the same image to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 5.8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, let us be alert, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. So what is all this saying today? What, how do we start? We're saying that we ought to be a people, we're to engage in battle well, be a people who embrace, who gladly welcome what God has done by rescuing us from sin. I've told you a great parallel book that you might enjoy in this series is this book, Spiritual Warfare and the Storyline of Scripture. I've told you that weekly for each of these elements of armor, they have a great way of understanding it. Take a look up on the screen. And it says this, is that for this helmet of salvation, let me get back to my notes, I'm sorry. Um, it, it, our position in Christ, being people who our righteousness is only found because of what Jesus has done, not what we've done to earn anything. Our position in Christ is simply that Jesus is our salvation. And secondly, our practice in life, we are to live out our salvation as children of God, allowing it to affect our thinking and our actions. Exactly. Number two in your notes today, your devotion is directly related to your deliverance. Your devotion is directly related to your deliverance. If you have a Bible, I'd like you to flip back to Luke chapter seven. It's a few books back, Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book in the New Testament, one of the gospels. Luke 7 verse 36, and we're gonna come upon, I wanna show you today, as we kind of do this series, we're looking at one of these concepts a week. And today, the best way I could demonstrate the value of gladly receiving, of having a gratitude for your salvation, is this narrative, this interaction between Jesus and a religious person and Jesus and a prostitute. And this is how it goes. Luke chapter seven, verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who'd lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them, his feet, with her hair kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, so he's had internal criticism, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is and that she is a sinner. I want you to get the scenario. This is a really challenging story to understand even how it physically could have happened if Jesus was having dinner at your house. You see, at your house, you would have him pull up to a really nice, big dining room table, most likely, and you would pull up a chair and everyone would pull up a chair around and you have this great meal. In the first century, they did not eat food that way. They actually ate reclining on pillows. And the table was a very short, when I was in Dubai on a mission trip coming home from Sri Lanka, we had a meal this way, it was super powerful. A very short table about a foot off the ground, all the food was laid out there. We sat on pillows with our feet kind of behind us to the side, as then we would rest on one arm and eat with the other. It was very, very cool to get the picture of what's going on in Luke 7. 
And so what that means is this woman did not come crawling under the table, right? That's a little awkward of a picture. She was behind him where his feet were back and, and feet were dirty and ugly. They were just wearing sandals out in the dirt. So you put the feet as far away as you could from the food. So Jesus is leaning this direction. He's eating from a table here. His feet are probably tucked up underneath him and they're back behind him, away from everything. And that's when this woman comes to him. Now, you don't have to be from the first century to realize this was a bit of a spectacle. This is a very weird situation. This is a very uncommon thing, uh, kind of uncomfortable for everyone around the table. This lady was not invited to dinner. Yet she makes herself known. And this Pharisee, this elite of the religious leaders, you have to see the contrast. There was no, more, no one more religious, equally so, no one more self-righteous than this Pharisee. And yet here comes a woman who had lived a sinful life, deeply aware of her failures, who comes and is honoring Jesus in this powerful, a bit uncomfortable way. That's the scenario. I, want, I don't want you to miss that. This is what's happening in the storyline as we set it up. Let's read on to the next part. Oh, and by the way, it's pretty clear that um, the Pharisee is critical of Jesus. If he knew who was doing this to his feet, he'd push his feet away. How dare you touch me? You've got the cooties. You're a sinner. So either he's not a prophet, he doesn't know who's touching him, or he does, and he's absolutely a mess. We know something better. We know that Jesus absolutely was a prophet, more so God himself. And yet we know he still received and accepted this woman who came to him. This is what it goes on to say. Luke 7, verse 40, Jesus answered him. So he says, Simon, interestingly enough, Simon doesn't say anything out loud. He was thinking it. Now Jesus answered him like, hey, I kind of know what you're thinking right now. Let me, let me give you an answer for your thoughts. Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. By the way, I wasn't trying to have a moment of great like silence, I couldn't find my, my place in the scripture. So I apologize. You're like, wow, he really meant that. I just couldn't find out the next part of the verse. So, so here's what happened. Jesus is now going to use a parable in a real life narrative setting. He's at this guy's house. This thing is happening a bit spectacle-ish. And he says, hey, two guys, a, a denarii was worth a day's wages, in the common culture in the first century. So I was thinking about that, and just for kicks, I just picked one. If you are a Redlands Unified School District substitute, if you are a substitute teacher, I went on the website, I found this, I corroborated it to be true. We all know now you make $135 a day. If you're here and you don't make that much, you might wanna to talk to your administrator, okay? But that's what your website says. $135 a day, Redlands Unified School District substitute makes that much. So look on the screen. So this is what happened. If a denarii is a day's wage, someone who owes 500 denarii converted to dollars, $67,500. That's how much the one who owed 500 denarii owes, $67,500. And the one who owes 50 denarii, right, one-tenth, 
owes $6,750. $6,750. So two people owe thousands of dollars, one extremely a lot, one a lot less, one-tenth of that, but they owe a money lender this money, and watch this, neither of them were able to repay the debt. Neither of them were able to do this, so the money lender canceled, forgave the debt of both. Now, let me just remind you of this. This story would have caught Simon sideways because money lenders don't stay in the money lending business very long if they keep forgiving debts. You don't do that. Just like it would catch your ear if you have a, a Visa card and if that card has racked up $67,500 worth of debt and Visa says, you know what? I realize you can't pay. We're just gonna forgive that. Put a zero at the bottom of your account. That would catch your ear because credit card companies don't stay in business very long if they keep doing that. That's what the equivalent was of what happened in the first century. So this catches their mind. And then Jesus asked this question at the end. He says, hey, both of them had debts they could not repay. And, and within that, he forgives both debts. This is an extravagant and incredible sacrificial type of forgiveness that's offered from one person to another, to actually two others. So it seems like it's a math problem, right? One that owes 10 times the amount of the other, but both the debts are forgiven. Until you notice what Jesus is asking, he's not asking who owed more. Look at the phrase, which one will love him more? Which one will love the money lender more having being forgiven? Look in your notes. It's not math, it's love. It's not math, it's love. Who loves more? Who is forgiven much or who has been forgiven little? Simple question for us to ask today to you. Let's make it personal. How much do you owe God? How much do you owe God? Because I have a feeling that some of us are here today, either in our past prior to putting our faith in Christ, you actually, as you're listening to the story, you're resonating with the 67,500. Man, I was a mess. Living like hell. And I mean that literally. Hell just means living a life apart from God. I was living like hell. And so when you talk about a guy who owed a money lender $67,000, that connects with the kind of debt and more that I owed God. Others of us are here today and yet, as you listen to the equation, you listen to the parable, you're actually more like me. And you kind of resonate with this idea of, well, I know I owe God, I know I'm a sinner. But Todd, when I put my faith in Christ, I was a child. And when I heard in my Sunday school class that you had the option of going to heaven or spending eternity apart from God and everyone else I loved, <laughs> The option was pretty easy. And I, if I'm honest with myself, I've really not taken other steps to realize I, I kind of feel like the guy who owed $6,750, $6,000, not $67,000. And Jesus is driving at something. Simon's not realizing. Simon still thinks it's a math problem. <laughs> Jesus flips it on him and says it's a love problem. And Simon, 
You're really resonating with the guy who only owed 50 denarii. You're resonating with the guy who owes 6,000 bucks. Because here's what's interesting about the guy who owes 50 denarii, $6,750, is that you can pay that off given enough time. 10 weeks working Monday through Friday equals 50 denarii, equals $6,750. You can pay off your own debt. $67,000? Too far gone. And what Jesus is connecting the dots with Simon, I don't think Simon ever walks away understanding, but we have a unique perspective on the story. And he's helping Simon realize, Simon, as long as you think, because here's the kicker, the line that you can't miss in the story, neither of them were able to pay the debt off. It does not matter if you owe $67,000 or if you owe $6,000. If you can't pay it off and the bill comes due, you're doomed either way. Jesus makes that infinitely clear. Simon's not listening because Simon is living a deeply religious life. He's trying to earn, trying to pay back the debt. And this woman, she gave up long ago. She's a mess. She knows it. Everyone around the table knows it. Watch this. Even Jesus knows it. But look at her response. All of humility, gratitude, and love. Let me illustrate it to you this way, because trying to compare ourselves to other, quote, sinners always goes south. You're going to need to do your best to look at my screen to help you. But look at this first picture. Let's say this. Let's say the person who owes $67,500, let's dig a hole a mile deep into the earth. Let's dig a hole a mile deep down into the earth. And let's put that wicked, sinful person down at the bottom of the hole. There you are. You are way down there. We're all looking down. We can't even see you. You're far, so far down below. We're going to put them there, $67,500 at the bottom of the, the, the whole mile into the earth. And then let's do this. For every dollar you owe less, let's put a foot on the ladder going upwards. So that means that's about 60,000 feet that you have an advantage over the guy a mile. That guy in the mile is less than zero. He's a mile down below, even us standing up on the flat ground. But now you're gonna get to go 60,000 more feet up. That's the equivalent of 11 and a half miles. You are killing it. This guy is so far down in the hole, a whole mess. You get to climb up the ladder because you owe only $6,750. You get a foot per or a foot per uh, dollar. And so you're now 11 and a half miles taller up above that person down below in the pit. And you can feel really pretty good about yourself right about now, man. Look, I can't even see, way up here. The goal, however, is not to be taller than the person below you. The goal is to get to the moon. The goal is to get to the moon and the moon from the earth's surface it's weird, I don't have this number memorized, I apologize. 238,857 miles. Who was starting to say it? Were you starting to say the amount? Way to go. Mark, I so appreciate you. I had to look at my notes. Mark knows it. You've already been there, so that's kind of why, so... 238,857 miles. So you being 11 miles up on the ladder, you only have 238,846 miles to go. 
You're killing it. This is Jesus's point. There's no use in comparing myself, quote, to other sinners who are so much more a mess than me because the distance that we need to go to be completely right with God is to the moon. There is no one who's making that. We all stand before him, a sinful mess. Aside from what this Jesus was just in a few years going to do for this woman and for all of us. Listen how the rest of Luke 7 concludes. Then verse 44, then he turned around and the, then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. She, you did not give me water, any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. Watch that. As her great love has shown its evidence of forgiven sins. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Look in your notes, just as the motivation that God has for saving us is out of his love for us, so love is the appropriate response back to him. Just as what motivates God to rescue you and me, to do what he did and punishing, we've seen that throughout this series, God doesn't let sin go unpunished to be able to forgive you and me. He just takes it out on his kid. That's where the punishment happens is at the cross of Jesus. The very thing we've sung about today and why there is no other name. And Jesus does that not because he has to, but because he loves you. And love for him, gratitude for him, is the most obvious response we would have back. Finally today, number three, the response of love for our salvation is doing good to others. The response of love for our salvation is doing good to others. Titus chapter three, look at verse three. Paul writes to his pastor friend, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness, watch, and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. The definition of mercy, not getting what you deserve. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of, by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out generously on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Watch. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things. Titus was a pastor on the island of Crete. So with these Cretan Christians, stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves, what? To doing what is good. This passage is one of the most succinct in all of the Bible demonstrating the gospel. 
John 3, 16 does it in a verse. This takes about four or five, but a power-packed passage about what it happened and what it meant for God to love you and to bring you into his family. It rings clear with what we've been looking at together today, that God saved us not by putting us on a payment plan, but by mercifully forgiving our debt when he penalized Jesus in our place. So see what Paul goes on to say to his apprentice, Titus, that not only God was merciful and not counting our sins against us, remember that money lender having that debt, but he brought us into his family by rebirth and renewal. These are two powerful ideas, a complete change for the better. Those are familial words, rebirth. You've been birthed into a new family. You've been renewed. You've been washed clean by the Holy Spirit. And these are rich aspects of our salvation. And not only are we not getting what we deserve, but far greater, receiving adoption into his family by giving us his very spirit to reside in us, becoming heirs of all that he has and all that he's promised to people for eternity. Can I get a yay God? That is the best story I've ever heard. Literally. There is no fairy tale that compares. There is no fictional book you can stack next to it. That is the best story I've ever heard. That's the gospel. That's salvation. Being saved from sin and brought into the family of God. All this is part of what it means when God saves you, both from punishment that you deserve because of the debt of sin you have, as well as including you as a family, a child in his family now and forevermore. But I want you to see this. Look at the response. Look at the aspect of how we're called to live once we've been saved and before we get to be with him around his throne. Be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Now, I want you to catch this. Please don't miss this. It's clear in this passage, we're not attempting to work for our salvation. That was super clear. All that was done in advance. But yet once we come into the family of God, guess what? We are to work for our dad, engaging in the family business. That absolutely is true. It's an axiom. We don't work for our salvation, but once we've been included in the family of God, there is a role to engage, a way to live that out. And this passage shows it good, a directive to do what is good. Man, there are so many things I could say in this pandemic season of ways that the people of Trinity Church are demonstrating this reality of doing good. Yesterday was an amazing example of that, but I go back to those of you who've participated in our blood drives, you are literally saving lives. Those of you who are week in and week out, it's the day has shifted, but this produce pantry that we give food boxes to on the other side of the worship center, people who are giving those away, demonstrating the love and the provision of God, those who are receiving them and even then going and handing them out to their neighbors, we are doing good. Not because we want to earn something from God, but because we're so grateful to God and what he's done for us. But I want you to know this, all the do-gooding. I don't mean that word negatively at all. We are called to do good. The book of Titus uses that phrase four times. It's a big deal. In doing good, as great as it is to save a physical life, as great as it is to provide nourishment and food, as great as it is to have an incredible family event yesterday, 
all of those things are leading to the ultimate best thing. Our good friend, Ray Johnston, who's come and preached here at Trinity before, do you remember his saying, good deeds, doing good, leads to goodwill, favor, leads to the good news. Ultimately, our goal is to see people put their faith in Jesus. Why? Because that's their greatest need, just like it's been for us. So look in your notes as we finish today. The greatest good that we can bring into the lives of those who are yet unconvinced is when we live out God's love and salvation towards them, influencing our relational worlds with Jesus. All the things that we said we are called to do, but I want you to hear it clearly. That's the greatest good because that's what they need most. It's so important to us. It's one of our core values. Core value that we have right up there. If you look on this glass window, you can see an outline of the globe. The reading that's on that next to it says your calling is to influence your world with Jesus. We absolutely believe that and that's the best good we do. So this week, what we're gonna do is we're gonna focus, look at the now what statement again. Welcome gladly and respond lovingly for the salvation that's offered through Jesus alone. I wanna give you just a few moments to pause, to consider those words and how you can embrace and live that out this week. Just prayerfully consider that and we'll come back up and receive communion together.